In recent weeks, we have begun our time together on Saturday evenings by singing the doxology. Doxology just means a word of praise. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, as a church, we've been singing that since we began. And in the many times that we've sung that, I don't know if you've ever noticed that in that song, we are calling on others to worship God. So we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly host, that's the angels in heaven, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now we have begun singing this in our time together when we gather on Saturdays at the beginning of our service for a couple of reasons. Practically speaking, it's meant to signal that you can find and take your seat, take a seat and sit down, though I'm not sure that that's been working at the moment because many of you are confused of whether we should be standing to sing or sitting to sing. So just to be clear, when they start singing that, that's your cue to go and find a seat and you can stay seated, don't worry. But more importantly than a cue for you to find a seat, we begin with the doxology more importantly, more crucially, more fundamentally, because we want to begin our gatherings together with praises that are made heavenward, praises that are made to the King of heaven. That's exactly why we exist as a church, and that's exactly why every human being exists, to give glory to God, to sing His praises, and to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. Now, why am I telling you this about the doxology? Well, unless you noticed in our reading earlier, our passage begins and it ends with a somewhat surprising doxology, a call to worship. But before we consider Daniel chapter 4, let's just go one more time to the Lord and ask for His help as we hear from Him and His Word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that You would cause us to behold You as You are, as You have revealed Yourself to be in Your Word, and that by beholding You, we would be led to worshipful awe. And so we ask that You would grant us eyes to see, and we ask that You'd give us hearts to feel, and we pray that You'd give us minds to know that You are the God Most High, that You're sovereignly in control of all things, that You're in control of kings and empires, and You're in control of each one of us. Lord, we pray that this truth would humble us. We pray that it would lead us to marvel at Your majesty, at Your sovereignty. And we pray that it would comfort us knowing that You work all things together for good for those who love You and are called according to Your purposes. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 4 stands in stark contrast to Daniel chapter 3. Here in the first three verses of Daniel chapter 4, we have another edict, another declaration, a command from King Nebuchadnezzar. But this time, 
Rather than commanding the worship of a golden image or statue under the threat of death if you disobey, here in Daniel chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, we actually hear from King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he writes, he writes a letter, a command to all the nations, the peoples, the languages that dwell on the earth. And he writes them to declare the great signs and mighty works and wonders that God has done for him. And he bursts into a short song of praise, a doxology, which you can most likely see as it's indented the way that it's formatted in your Bibles. Both at the beginning and end of the letter, we see this. So, at this point, we're left wondering, what has happened? What on earth has happened? What has brought about such a radical change in this king? We've already seen in Daniel 1, 2, and 3 that Nebuchadnezzar has had a number of experiences with the God of these Jewish exiles. These people, this small group of people that he has conquered and brought into exile in Babylon. We've seen that Nebuchadnezzar saw that these men, these wise young men from Judah, were ten times wiser than any of the wise men in the rest of his empire. That was in Daniel chapter 1. We've seen that he acknowledged that Daniel's God has power to reveal mysteries in Daniel chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar also saw that their God had the power to save, to rescue, to deliver them from his hands, from his great fiery furnace last week when we were in Daniel chapter 3. But at the end of chapter 3, he made an edict to all his people, and his edict wasn't worship this God. No, he said, just don't say anything against this God. So, what happened to him to bring him to where we find him here in the first three verses of Daniel chapter 4? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because that is what all of Daniel chapter 4, the rest of Daniel chapter 4 is all about. Nebuchadnezzar shares a testimony, a story of how he learned this important central truth, that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men. That's the central truth that Nebuchadnezzar learned was that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men. We see that phrase repeated in verse 17, in verse 25, in verse 32, that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of men. If you want an even simpler version of that, God rules. God rules. That's the heart of chapter 4. But as we'll see, as it's worked out in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, there are two ways that this, is, that this truth is worked out in the story. Two ways that this truth can be applied through Nebuchadnezzar's life story that he shares. The first is this, be warned, be warned, the God who reigns humbles the proud. We see that in verses 1 through 33, almost the entire chapter. 
Really, this is the most obvious application of the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He basically lives this out, that the God who reigns humbles the proud. Nebuchadnezzar was proud, and God humbled him. We see that in the very last verse of this chapter. So, skip down to verse 37 of chapter 4. Look there with me. Nebuchadnezzar concludes, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all of His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. So, what happened? What did it take for this pagan king to be humbled before God Almighty? How did he learn this lesson? He tells us the story. It opens in verse 4, and we find King Nebuchadnezzar at ease and prospering in his palace, but immediately we're told he had another alarming dream, a troubling dream at night. And you might be feeling like we're having deja vu because we've seen Nebuchadnezzar have another troubling dream in chapter 2 that we looked at several months ago. It's a very similar scenario to chapter 2. The king has this dream. It's extremely troubling to him. None of his wise men can interpret it. But unlike Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar makes no threats to murder all of the men because they can't answer it. Instead, now he calls and tells Daniel to come to him, and then he tells Daniel the dream. And he asks Daniel to interpret it because he knows Daniel can do this. He believes that Daniel's God can reveal mysteries. He's learned something since Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is dismayed when he hears the dream. He's speechless for a little while. But King Nebuchadnezzar reassures him and tells him, don't be alarmed, just tell me the dream. And Daniel begins by saying, oh, oh king, I, I wish that this dream was about your enemies, not about you. It's clearly bad news. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar tells about how he saw a great tree tall and strong, that a tree that was so large that it was visible in all of the earth. This tree provided shade and it provided food for all. And he says, Daniel says that the tree is King Nebuchadnezzar, whose rule now covered the whole of the known earth at that time. So far, the dream sounds good, but then the king describes how he saw a watcher a holy one, or some sort of angelic messenger from heaven who came down and said, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump. This tree then becomes a he in verse 23, and Daniel explains that God has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar will be driven from among men. He's going to live in the fields with the beasts for seven periods of time, till he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. There we have that central, the first recounting of that central truth. And what God has decreed to take place is a lesson in humility for King Nebuchadnezzar. 
There's something that God wants Nebuchadnezzar to learn. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that heaven rules. God is in charge. He's sovereign over all the kings and the kingdoms of the earth, including Nebuchadnezzar's and the kingdom of Babylon. Now, at first, that might just sound pretty plain and ordinary to you. You understand that, but I don't want you to miss the significance. Because at this time, Nebuchadnezzar was king of the most powerful political entity in the whole world. His kingdom stretched from as far as Egypt, where Egypt is today, to western Iran, all the way up to Syria and as far south as Saudi Arabia, right next door to us here in Dubai. He basically ruled the world at that time. And as we saw in verse 4, where he was at ease and prospering, his empire was at peace. He wasn't fighting any more battles. He had conquered all that he wanted. Even the imagery of the dream itself communicates this as well. The tree was visible to the very ends of the earth, we're told, and it provided food and shelter for all the animals and all the birds. Nebuchadnezzar was comparatively more powerful than anyone living today, even the President of the United States, or dare I say, the Queen of England. But God wanted him to know, he may be king of all the earth, but God wanted him to know that God is king of the universe. He's the Most High. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Nebuchadnezzar is only king by permission from God Most High. He is placed where he is by God. But this was not just a lesson for Nebuchadnezzar alone. Look back with me at verse 17. When Nebuchadnezzar recounts the dream, he says, he says that this decree is to the end, or so that, for the purpose that the living may know that the Most High rules. So, the way that this works is that by implication, from greater to lesser, if God rules over the highest king on earth, He rules over everyone, all of the living as well. If God rules even over this mighty king, He rules over you and me and everybody else who exists. So, if you're sitting here today and you're among the living, which I hope you all are, then you need to learn this lesson too. You need to know that God rules. And friends, knowing that God rules is more than simply acknowledging that that is a fact, that it's true that God rules. No, knowing that God rules is submitting to His rule, His rule over your life and everything in it, His rule over everybody else's life and all things. Knowing that God rules is recognizing that He has given you every single thing that you have. It's giving God the glory for any and all accomplishments that you have achieved. 
which is not something that proud people do. So there's a warning here for us. The God who reigns humbles the proud. The dream showed that Nebuchadnezzar would be stripped of his majesty. He would descend into madness. He'd go insane for a season. He would flee into the fields out from this glorious city of Babylon, and he would start feasting on grass. And we're told in verse 28 that all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months passed by since his dream, and he has clearly forgotten the message. And so we find him walking on the roof of his palace, looking out over all the glories of Babylon, the beautiful ornate temples to the various gods that were worshipped in the city, And the city also flourished with numerous advances in architecture and art and science and mathematics, the leading cutting edge of technology at the time. But maybe its crowning jewel was the the thing that he noticed, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, those that he had built for his homesick wife. This was this this. Uh, hanging gardens of Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and, and a second was the protective wall that he had built around the city, a wall so large it would take thousands and thousands of bricks to build, a, a wall so, so fortifying that you could drive two chariots alongside each other on the top of the wall. It would have been an astonishing feat to behold. These things were what Nebuchadnezzar was watching, was seeing. You know, each of those bricks that was, that was used to build the wall, every single one of them had King Nebuchadnezzar's name inscribed on it. That was how much he thought of his own name and his own glory. And it really was amazing. He had built this place. He had bankrolled it. He had led his armies to defeat and conquer their enemies. And when they had defeated these nations, they used their resources to contribute to making this city and its empire as impressive as it was. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes credit. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Just like Babel of old in Genesis, is the same place, the place that had built a tower up into the heavens, just like this tree, for the glory of its own name, to make a name for itself, this king glorifies his own name. And before the words have even come out of his mouth, we're told, a sentence of judgment is spoken from heaven against his pride. He loses his kingdom, and he loses his own mind. He becomes like a beast, like an animal living in the field. We're not told exactly how long this this lasted for, this sickness, this mental illness that he had, but by telling us that it was seven periods of time, we are told that it, it was exactly long enough for him to learn this lesson. The description of his animal-like features in this vivid illustration, it, it communicates the beastly nature of sin, especially pride. 
Pride makes men behave like animals, like beasts, not the way that God intended them to as His image bearers. Not living in light of God's rule and reign in our lives is insanity. So, let me ask you, do you realize that you aren't sovereign over your own life? You aren't the captain of your own ship. You don't secure your future by your own actions and efforts. You aren't in control. God is. But just because God is in, just because God is in control, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what you do. Look back with me at verse 27. Did you notice what Daniel encouraged the king to do? He knew that this was a decree made by God, but his counsel to the king, he asked, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's message is simple. Repent. Repent of your sins. Repent of your pride. Break them off. To know that God rules is to repent of trying to rule for yourself. It's to submit to God's rule, which Daniel summarizes as practicing righteousness and being merciful, especially to those who are oppressed. The sin of pride manifests in so many ways in our lives. But we see just a couple ways here in this text from the example of Nebuchadnezzar that we see pride, and we must identify it and kill it in our own lives. The first way we see pride in his life was in his thoughts and his words. King Nebuchadnezzar took credit for all that he saw, but after learning his lesson, his words were changed, right? He proclaimed to the world God's mighty works and God's glory in verses 1 through 3 and at the end of the chapter as well. This whole chapter is actually framed by Nebuchadnezzar boasting in who God is and what He's done. He's not boasting in his own accomplishments anymore. In fact, this whole chapter is him boasting in his humiliation, his, his looking like a fool, his being turned mad like an animal. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to practice giving God the glory for all the things that you have in your life, all the good or even the hard things that you have experienced in your life, just like Nebuchadnezzar, and share it with others. Nebuchadnezzar is writing this letter to the whole earth, all the people's. That's the first way that we see the sin of pride and how being humbled transforms us in Nebuchadnezzar. We also see it in our willingness to repent. Pride won't allow us to repent. Pride won't allow us to admit that we are wrong. Pride won't allow us to admit that we're sinful, that we're beastly. But humility confesses sin and it turns its eyes towards heaven. And we see that even here in this pagan king acknowledging how proud he had been before the God Most High. Brothers and sisters, be humble. 
Be faithful. Honor God. Fight the sin of pride. So, the first application of the fact that God rules is to be warned to turn away from pride. Turn away from trying to rule your own life and humbly accept that God reigns. But the second application is seen in the last section, this shorter passage, 34 through 37. The second application is this, be comforted, the God who reigns restores the humble. Be comforted, the God who reigns restores the humble. At the end of his appointed time, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes to heaven, and immediately his reason and his kingdom were restored to him. His greatness grew even more than it had been before. No longer was he like a beast, but God restored his glory, he says. And all it took was to humbly look upwards to the Lord and to recognize that he reigned and to submit joyfully to God's rule. King Nebuchadnezzar responds to the mercy he's been shown by heaping praise and honor to the King of heaven, recognizing that all his works are right and his ways are just, even his ways of turning Nebuchadnezzar into an insane beast of the field. He acknowledges that his dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, even himself, are nothing compared to this God, and no one can question God Most High. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson that God reigns and His reign is perfect. God is sovereign over the whole earth. This truth, this doctrine of God's universal rule over every detail of our lives, every moment that we have breath over everything in the world, all at the same time, should humble us. It should humble us, but it should also comfort us. It's a great comfort to God's people to know that He is seated on the throne of heaven. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said that there is no attribute of God that is more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. That is, that God rules over everything. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. The sovereignty of God God's rule over our lives is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. What comfort, what comfort we can take in knowing that God is in complete control. What a comfort it would have been to those exiles, though they were captives, enslaved, and in exile in Babylon, to know that God reigned he was in control even over this pagan king, and that God restores those who humble themselves before him, even King Nebuchadnezzar. So, how much more so God's chosen people, the people of Israel? From the beginning of this chapter to its end, we see that there's hope for proud people. God humbles us to walk not in pride, 
but in humility. He bends our will to bow to His majesty, and He promises to restore us when we accept His rule over our lives. The Israelites were in exile because they had not followed God's rule, because they had broken covenant with Him, because they'd refused to practice righteousness, and because they had oppressed and not shown mercy to those that were most needy. But there was hope. There was hope for them. Through Moses and the prophets, God had promised that when His people humbled themselves before Him, He would restore them even greater than they were before, just like He had done with King Nebuchadnezzar. God restores those who humble themselves before Him. God had humbled this proud, self-centered king who had dismissed His rule, and He was transformed through humility to boast in what He thought He had alone had made, but no longer, but to now boast in the Lord and to glorify God and all that God had given him. If there was ever a man that lived who had the right to be proud, it was Jesus, God the Son who took on flesh. He had built not merely an empire, but Jesus made all things in heaven and on earth. And by His power, the world exists and is sustained, and it was all made for His glory and for the glory of His majesty. But we're told in the Scriptures, astonishingly, that though He was God, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This King of glory humbled Himself. God sent His Son to restore His proud people by dying the death that their prideful rebellion deserved and by rising triumphant in victory over the grave, over sin, over death. And because of His humility, because of what Christ has done, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every other name. A day is coming, friends, when God will judge us all. But for those who have been humbled, who like Nebuchadnezzar acknowledge His rule over them, who've turned in faith to the humble King, King Jesus, They will be exalted with Him. They will reign and rule with Him. Friends, if you are here and you haven't turned to Christ, don't wait to be humbled on that day. Break off your sins. Turn from them. Repent and trust and put your faith in Christ Jesus who died and rose again so that we could be forgiven of our pride. And you will be restored. You will be forgiven. You will be exalted. And brothers and sisters, as we face hardships in this world where we don't belong, where we're exiles and strangers as we wait for our heavenly home, let this truth be a comfort to you. You might not know why the things that you suffer now are happening to you. You may not know for how long you might suffer those things, but God is in control. He has a plan which we might not understand, but is according to His perfect wisdom. 
God will restore His people who humble themselves before Him. Fewer doctrines of the Christian faith are more important than the fact that God reigns over all. This truth humbles you in good seasons, and it provides hope for you in hard seasons, and it gives you joy in every season. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a constant nourishment to the soul. It's fuel to our worship and our obedience as we wait for God's coming kingdom. Praise God, Most High, who reigns over all. He humbles the proud, and He exalts those who are humble. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would help us to learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. We pray that we might not need to go through such an experience that he did. We pray that we would learn from him that You are God Most High that You rule over all the earth, that You give the kingdom to the lowliest, the humblest of men, and that You've given the kingdom to Your Son. We praise You for Him, our humble King. He humbled Himself through His obedience to die for us and has been exalted and is seated now at Your right hand. And we pray that these truths would humble and comfort us as we wait for Him to come back. We pray all these things for the glory of Your name alone. Amen.